BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Lily Tramali. From 2000 to 2001, the state faced an acute and puzzling energy crisis. Practically overnight, the cost of electricity skyrocketed. And for a while, few people knew the exact details about why. Regulators would later learn that on the heels of deregulation, market manipulation by companies like Enron was partially to blame. Before long, rolling blackouts had become the norm. We'll take a look back at the energy crisis, what happened, what we learned, and why the legacy of that time remains with us today. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. Two decades ago, California went dark. On the heels of deregulation of the state power grid, rolling blackouts affected millions of Californians, hitting consumers at home and shutting down businesses. As power prices skyrocketed, the utility PG&E filed for bankruptcy for the first time. The state's economy contracted and the administration of then-Governor Gray Davis spiraled into crisis mode. As it turned out, energy companies, including Enron, had created artificial shortages, taking power plants offline, sending prices through the roof as much as 800 percent higher. Enron ultimately unraveled when whistleblowers revealed that it had been cooking its books for years, but not before the company had done severe damage to our energy markets. What have we learned from that crisis? And is our electricity supply safe from market manipulation now? Joining us are Steve Weissman. He is a lecturer at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley and former director of the energy program at Berkeley's Law School. He directed the California Public Utility Commission's initial investigation into the 2000-2001 energy crisis. Also with us is Rebecca Smith. She's an energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal and a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her coverage of the California energy power crisis. Later in the hour, we will be joined by former Governor Gray Davis, who was recalled in 2003 after the crisis, as well as Loretta Lynch, former president of the CPUC. For now, Steve Weissman and Rebecca Smith, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Steve, let's talk uh, a little bit about the origins of all of this. I had the privilege of taking part in much of the energy regulation class you taught at the Goldman School this past semester. And one of the most unforgettable moments, at least for me, was hearing you describe where you were when you learned that something was seriously wrong in California's power markets. Tell us that story. Yeah, I was uh, on vacation with my family up uh, at the city of Berkeley's uh, camp on the Tuolumne River and got, and this is late June of 2000, and I got word that uh, Loretta Lynch, the, as you mentioned, the then president of the PUC, where I formerly worked, uh, wanted to talk to me. So I drove to Groveland, California, got on the payphone on the main street, and we had a conversation. And it was a hard conversation to forget because uh, uh, Loretta told me that the uh, we were, they were seeing dramatic uh, blips in the price for electricity that was being paid in the wholesale market. Uh, and, and she told me that she saw potential very serious ramifications from this. She said it could have a severe impact on the state's economy. It could undermine the reliability of the grid and could also lead to the downfall of, uh, of the current governor, uh, Gray Davis, if things weren't handled properly. Um, 
I actually thought some of those predictions were a little much at the point, <laughs> but they certainly proved to be spot on in every one of those uh, those factors. Uh, so I uh, I was invited by uh, Loretta Lynch to go back to the commission where I did initially uh, oversee uh, our investigation of what was going wrong in the wholesale market. So stepped aside when uh, we were ready to hand over to litigators a few months later, uh, but it was. Uh, uh, pretty stunning to realize a couple of things right up front. One is that uh, both on the state and federal level, I think we were uh, grossly under underprepared for dealing with this kind of a crisis. Mm. Um, when uh, when I got to the commission a few weeks after that phone call, um, we uh, we really had to construct uh, an organization for this. We had to draft staff people from around the commission, uh, develop a budget, get file cabinets. Uh, um, teach people uh, what some of the issues were they needed to be pursuing and uh, and develop uh, computer systems so that we could manage a, a tremendous amount of data that we hope to collect from the various participants. Yeah, and, I, and it's striking sorry. to hear you say that. I mean, this idea that, I mean, of course, in retrospect, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say, but the idea that there there wasn't a lot of preparation for the possibility of a crisis like this, and yet there were signals that, uh, you know, there was reason to be worried, right? And Rebecca Smith, you wrote about this. In fact, you wrote one of the first stories, if not the first story, signaling that a crisis could be on the horizon. This was a few years before its time, actually. Actually, in 1999, you wrote it for the San Francisco Chronicle. It was called Electric Users Could Be In For A Jolt. And I'm wondering what tipped you off that a crisis might be on the horizon. I was actually worried about the California market from the moment it was deregulated. That happened, ironically, on April Fool's Day in 1998. Um, I was worried because I had watched the legislature put together AB 1890, which was the bill that deregulated California's retail market. And after that law was passed, I interviewed people about the contents. I went through it literally line by line to try to understand everything that was included in that bill. Mm. And what I discovered was that the number of people in the legislature whom I felt could actually uh, show that they had a full understanding of that law, you could count the number of people on one hand. Wow. And I found that very worrisome, even though the thing passed nearly unanimously. Now, the other thing was the market was deregulated in you know, early 1998. By summer of that first year, we already saw indications that people were gaming the market in that that first summer, the price hit for a megawatt hour of electricity, which is the unit of measurement. It hit $9,999. There was no reason for that high price. In retro, I mean, in retrospect, I now think that it was the energy traders basically kicking the tires, trying to figure mm. out what they could do and what they could get away with. And we saw short bursts leading up to the energy crisis, which began in the summer of 2000. We saw bursts of this sort of anomalous bidding behavior. I think it was, I think we were getting warning shots during that period that people were gonna take advantage of this market, that they were hard at work trying to identify loopholes that they could exploit. And this was all going to redound to the, you know, this was gonna be a terrible disaster on some level for California. Mm -hmm. We want to invite listeners into this conversation. What are your memories of the 2000-2001 energy crisis? Did you lose power? And what concerns do you have about the electricity supply? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and on Facebook. We are at KQED Forum. Or email us your questions to KQED, I'm sorry, to forum at kqed.org. Steve, it sounds like you thought early on that whoever was behind this would have to stop, that they wouldn't want to kill the golden goose, and that lawmakers, who Rebecca just alluded to, passed this AB 1890 bill nearly unanimously, uh, that they would step in at some point to change things. But that's not what ended up happening. The... the uh... The behavior of the marketers, uh, the people who are, who are making the choice to bid in at these tremendous levels or to withhold supply, um, I, th I think it might be fair to say that many people assumed that they couldn't keep doing this uh, forever uh, because obviously at some point uh, people would step in and say, well, we can't we can't sustain this kind of kind of approach. 
and that the generators and the marketers would be better off if they were to just uh, grab some profits now and then step back a little and allow for some stability. But I guess the temptation was too great. I think there are also were too many uh, uh, moving uh, targets at the same time. And so we saw this continual sustained uh, escalation of the prices. Uh, also, I think there was a hope uh, that uh, at some point the federal regulators uh, who really control these wholesale markets for electricity uh, would step in and do a couple of obvious things that ultimately they did do, but they waited a year before they stepped in to do that. They could have really stopped uh, the, the acute portion of this crisis uh, on the dime if they wanted to do that. Uh, ultimately, again, after a year of critical problems, including the rolling blackouts you mentioned, uh, FERC uh, under new leadership, the federal regulators under new re leadership uh, did uh, do two things. One was that they put a cap on how high the prices could go in the market. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they did was just to require that generators that weren't uh, totally debilitated actually would bid their power into the market. And so there would be enough supply to, to make the market function a little better. Yeah. Uh, they could have done that a lot sooner, uh, but they didn't. And so what that meant was as we were trying to understand this crisis, uh, uh, the water kept, uh, kept gushing over the dam. The problem kept getting worse and worse, uh, which of course uh, meant that we were uh, we were trying to fix a, a broken airplane while it was trying to fly. Mm. We are going to bring in our first caller. Sean is joining us now from San Jose. Welcome, Sean. Hi. Uh, people that use medical devices, um, like I use a CPAP, I need that to breathe at night. We have a lot of friends that have motorized chairs or quadriplegics. Um, a lot of having reliable power, having backup battery power um, that needs to be worked into healthcare and into uh, public safety. It's a lot more common than people think. And, um, you know, I use a, I use an office backup battery system, mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, but, you know, my needs are my electrical needs um, are, uh, uh, are simple. Other people, they have these devices that they need all the time. Mm -hmm. This is so true. This is such an essential commodity power is. And, you know, not only do we have rolling blackouts now, we had them again last year for the first time since the energy crisis. We now have these public safety power shutoffs uh, that the utilities call um, when they're trying to prevent their lines from sparking fires. Uh, that usually comes a little bit later in the fire season. I want to bring in Loretta Lynch. She is the former president of the California Public Utilities Commission who had a front row seat to all of this. Welcome to you, Loretta. Thanks for having me, Lily. It's always great to speak with you. Just quick, you know, quickly, what were your reflections? I mean, it sounds like you had a fairly uh, clear view of just how dire the situation was, perhaps sooner than a lot of other players, uh, including Governor Davis, perhaps uh, might have had when this was all unfolding. Talk about that. Sure. I came from the private sector. I was a white collar criminal defense lawyer before I joined state government. So I knew a criminal when I saw one. And I knew that Enron was engaged in criminal activity. The only question to me was, was it a criminal conspiracy? And it turned out, yes, it was. The problem is the law that Rebecca Smith talked about almost let the criminal ban. They designed the electricity market, which was brand new in the United States then, for them. It was by them and they operated it. So not surprisingly, they got away with all sorts of fraud and it took government a really long time to catch up to them. And I would disagree with Steve a little bit mm -hmm. about you know having to pull together resources because there was an intentional plan to starve the government watchdog to well, make it unable to go after the criminals. Loretta, hold that thought. We're going to come back to you soon. We are talking about the legacy of Enron and California's energy crisis in 2000-2001. Stay with us. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the legacy of Enron on California's energy supply with Steve Weissman, lecturer at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, Rebecca Smith, energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and Loretta Lynch, former president of the CPUC. We're going to be joined in just a moment by Gray Davis, former governor. Uh, Loretta, I, I'm sorry I cut you off before the break. Go ahead and finish your thought. Just that 
the 16 years of Republicans before Governor Davis was elected intentionally starved the regulatory agencies so that they would not be able to catch the crooks. And 20 years ago, Enron and its cronies took advantage of California's new electricity markets to defraud those systems for profit. And that severely damaged California's economy and frankly helped to cause a historic recall. The political and economic fallout of their fraud was vast. Yeah, and there's definitely signs that history may be repeating itself as our current governor, Gavin Newsom, now faces a recall as well. I'm joined by Gray Davis now. He is former governor of California who was recalled in 2003 after the 2000-2001 energy crisis. Governor Davis, thank you so much for making time in your day to join us. It's my pleasure to be with you. I want to ask you, you know, what was the energy crisis like from where you sat? It's easy to see now what a calamity this was, but was the gravity of the problem clear to you in those early days? Uh, No, and that was the whole problem. We couldn't figure out what what were creating the blackouts. So six months after I left office, a video was released where Enron ordered that the power serving the city of San Francisco uh, would go down, and there were traffic accidents and uh, computers didn't work and all kinds of problems ensued. The reason that date is important, it was four days after a whole bunch of us met in Washington to see if there couldn't be some sort of settlement arrangement. Uh, and I had two Republicans and two Democrats and all five of us rejected the only proposal that Enron and the other energy providers suggested, which is raise rates from $35 a megawatt hour to at least 1000 and maybe 2000 mm-hmm. Five to 10 times of what used to be paid for uh, electricity, and none of us wanted the ratepayers to bear that burden because the ratepayers uh, were not pushing for energy deregulation. That was the energy company. So uh, I suspected all along that Enron was up to no good. Uh, I never thought they would be ordering blackouts, but that's exactly what they did. And why did they do it? To drive up electricity prices. I'm so struck by this because even today there is a live debate going on, especially after last year's rolling blackouts. This idea that raising uh, the cap on what we pay for electricity here in California would help the situation somehow. I'm not sure how close you are to that debate, Governor Davis, but if if you are following that, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I want to just make a point. So when I was governor, we authorized through emergency powers that I used the uh, approval and construction of 33 power plants, more than all my four predecessors combined. And we left this state with 20 years of reliable power. We did that through contracting for power. We did that through building 33 new plants. uh, And California had a bright energy future. But that is a separate issue from how Cal ISO manages the grid. And I'm a big believer in contracting for power. So today, about 25% of the power we need, we begin to look for at about four in the afternoon of the day we need it from the 11 Western states. The problem is if the 11 Western states have the same weather challenges that we have, they may not have enough power to send to us. And that is almost always the case. When it's hot here, it's hot in Arizona, it's hot in Oregon, right? Well, not always the case, but it, it was the case a couple of times uh, uh, a year or two ago. So managing the uh, reserve power on a day-to-day basis requires good judgment. And I just believe a good portion of that should be through contracting power. You know it is there. So maybe not 25% is imported, maybe 8 or 10%. That drives down the 8 or 10%. And then people come back and say, well, don't we have to pay more to contract for power? Yes, but it's a lot less expensive than when you have a blackout. So what grade would you give the California ISO, the independent system operator that operates our grid? Um, we just had a flex alert on Saturday. We had we have one today. Um, you know, and this is July. Um, you know, we're in mid-July, and uh, it, it doesn't seem like there is enough supply out there. Um, I mean, some of this is idiosyncratic. There's a fire in Oregon, and that's cutting off some of the imports that might have been available from that state. But, you know, the buffer isn't there uh, to the extent that uh, a lot of certainly California ratepayers would like. Uh, what grade would you give Kaiso? Uh, I don't know if I can give them a grade. Um, 
but when Loretta was on the uh, PUC, you know, we, we came up with a flex alert system, which is still used today. Uh, we came up with greater incentives for people to uh, have low rates during most of the year, but when we had a real uh, challenge in terms of power, uh, they, they would cut back their, uh, cut back their use of power dramatically. There's lots of ways you can deal with this issue. But as I recall talking to several Silicon Valley types at uh, seven in the morning, way back in 2000, early 2000, they said, can you assure us governor, the lights will not go out? And I said, I, there's nothing I'd rather do than assure you, but I can't make that promise. So you're better off getting a generator. Now, in fact, Silicon mm -hmm. Valley never did go down but if you have a high-tech economy, uh, there's just no way you can afford an outage. And I would err on the side of caution. Every governor is different, every administration is different, uh, but that, that was just my approach. During the 2000-2001 energy crisis, you got to the point where you ultimately just had to call out FERC, the federal regulator. What was it that finally brought you to that point? <laughs> FERC, was a, FERC might as well have been on the side of the energy company said, can, can I be clear here? Uh, Enron was a criminal enterprise. Mm -hmm. Their CEO went to prison, albeit for accounting violations, for a was sentenced for 22 years. The Ken Lay, former CEO, was convicted, uh, mysteriously died a couple years later. And uh, mm -hmm. Castell, the CFO, had all these off-the-books transactions that were not available to the public and were disguising. The, how flimsy Enron's business plan was. Mm -hmm. uh, about 10 people went to prison. They were just a total, complete con job, but none of that was known to us until that video came out of Enron ordering the power down in San Francisco. So uh, I would give, uh, Enron's a criminal enterprise. I'm sure they had some good people working for them, but the people at the top, you know, were just uh, largely responsible for the problem California experienced. Now, the good news is, that at the suggestion of then Attorney General Bill Lockyer was succeeding Attorney Generals following his path, almost all the money and maybe by now all the money that uh, uh, Enron and the other power companies overcharged California back over all these many years has, has been recouped. Uh, but it was still a very difficult time uh, for all of us, not only at the PUC, but uh, in the administration because no one person, not one person not a member of the press or the public ever asked me one question about energy mm. when I was running for governor in 1998. Hmm. Rebecca Smith from the Wall Street Journal. I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about the role of the federal energy re regulator FERC in all of this. There was a change of leadership at the top during the crisis. At first, it seems like they were very reluctant or maybe the word is resistant to getting involved. What changed? Uh, well, if you have ever met the head of the uh, FERC, his name is Hebert, H-E-R-B-E-R-T, and he was an ideologue, pure and simple. His grandmother lived in Palm Springs, and I said, aren't you concerned? I mean, it gets really hot in Palm Springs right mm -hmm. around now. Uh, aren't you really concerned that the power go off? And uh, he basically said, um, you know, she decided to live in Palm Springs. That's not my problem. So... People, ideologues are not, are not good policy makers because this is all about balancing several equities, making sure the power stays on, making sure the schools work, making sure people have opportunity, making sure people are operating fairly. So it's constantly a constant uh, balancing act. And ideologues are great for universities, they're great for uh, news outlets, but they're not great policy makers. We are talking about California's 2000-2001 energy crisis and the legacy of Enron. Rebecca Smith from the Wall Street Journal, at, at a certain point, the top uh, there is some change at the top of FERC, the federal regulator in charge of energy policy. Uh, Pat Wood ends up coming in. And how did that change the picture for California? Well, as Governor Davis just referenced, when Kurt A. Bear, who was a Mississippi Republican, an acolyte of uh, former Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott, when he was running FERC, there was a very laissez-faire approach. It was essentially California got itself into this mess. California can get itself out. It was indifferent to the point of callousness. Mm -hmm. That changed gradually. Um, honestly, I believe that California had two champions on FERC. 
at the latter period of the energy crisis. One was an Arkansas Democrat, Bill Massey. He was a member of the FERC Commission. The other was Pat Wood, a Republican from Texas. So uh, politically, these two men had many, they had more differences than agreements probably. But what they both believed was that California was being absolutely abused and that it was intolerable. They believed in the uh, language of the Federal Power Act, which says that all consumers are due rates that are just and reasonable. And they took that literally. They said, clearly what's happened in California is unjust. It's not reasonable by any measure. And it's up to us as federal regulators to intervene and try to help put out this fire. Mm. So yeah. there was a change in philosophy, in other words, that anyone who thinks that who serves on these boards is unimportant is absolutely wrong because we saw it very clearly in that period. There were people who couldn't have cared less about what happened in California. And there were those who understood that markets exist to serve people, consumers. What are your and, memories of the 2000-2001 energy crisis? Did you lose power? And what concerns do you have about the electricity supply today? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Marsha writes, what I remember is that the market manipulations served a few and harmed millions, and the fantasy that these people would self-correct their bad behavior has persisted to our peril. We're going to go to Tom in San Francisco now. Go ahead, Tom. I remember when our fearless leader, Bill Clinton, as president, kept saying, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, you guys, uh, this is a free system now, deregulated, you're going to have to work it out yourself. And he left us to hang and dry ourselves. Thank you. Governor Davis, what are your thoughts on Bill Clinton's leadership during this? Uh, He was on his way out. We had uh, George W. Bush in office for part of this. Did you feel you had any help from the White House as this crisis was was unfurling itself? Well, I, I think Bill Clinton did a great job, particularly with the economy, and I have nothing but good things to say about him. Um, I think both the Clinton and the Bush administration, much of this happened under the Bush administration, uh, were kind of, this is a a market matter, not a uh, policy matter. But uh, as one of your commentators said earlier, the Power Act requires that rates be fair and just uh, when you have a 35 megawatt, uh, $35 megawatt selling for $1,000, much less Mm $2,000, that is not fair and just. Uh, but I, I do want to say this. I would go to governor con- governor's conferences um, when I was governor, and the states were about evenly split in those days. And Republicans and Democrats would come up to me, and, and some would say, you know, deregulation conceptually makes sense to me, uh, but I understand that you can't store power. Now, maybe battery storage, maybe battery storage can get you five to 10 hours today. At some point, uh, that may solve the problem. But a couple of years ago, uh, it, the wind didn't blow for 11 straight days. So when you're talking about battery storage, you're talking about at least uh, a week or two of reliable power before uh, you can feel good about that being power you can call upon when everything else uh, goes down. Uh, so I, I, I think a couple of good things have happened. We got all the money back, ultimately, thanks to a lot of great attorney general's work and Bill Lockyer's leadership. By the way, he said, is this all right with you? I want to sue Enron, and I want to depose Ken Lay. And that was the model. We would depose Mm. the CEO was the first thing we did, and that obviously got their attention. Um, But every time we would propose a settlement, FERC would come in uh, with a low bid Mm. and said, that's, that's too much of a settlement. The Ninth Circuit would overrule FERC, and then the energy company would offer more than FERC recommended. So FERC was just an agent of the energy companies. I think Pat Woods was more amiable, polite, uh, had a couple of good suggestions, which I appreciated, uh, kind of commiserated with us, uh, and things did cha- change slightly. But what really changed was when the Democratic, the Senate went Republican to Democrat. I think some independent uh, left the Republican Party and started to caucus with the Democratic Party. Uh, then I remember hearings that were held in Washington. I went back and that seemed to change attitudes at the FERC as well, because they, the handwriting was on the wall that one of their 
all those oversight committees would be watching what FERC was doing. We are talking about the California energy crisis two decades later. George from San Jose is on the line. Go ahead, George. Oh, hi. Uh, when I'm listening to this conversation, the, the impression that I get is that the fox is guarding the hen house. In other words, the problem is that the regulators, instead of representing the interests of the people of California, they're representing the interests of the energy companies. And it seems like the same is true maybe to a lesser extent for the state legislature. legislature. Uh, and and are, are there actually beneficial interests that exist and create conflicts of interest uh, in those two groups? And are those people required to uh, divulge those conflicts of interest? And uh, has there been any pro- any progress in that over the past 20 years? Rebecca Smith, I'm really interested in your take on that question. I mean, you outlined how when AB 1890 passed and you had canvassed uh, many of the legislators up in Sacramento that it was clear to you that many of them uh, had not read the law. Um, I mean, that's that's one uh, one scenario is ignorance. The other is uh, something a little bit more sinister, which our caller just outlined. Did you get the sense that there was... Um, you know, corruption uh, involved in this on the part of the state legislature and, and on the part of regulators? No, I would not say I felt there was corruption. I felt what we saw was what we always see, which is that well-heeled interests that have money and that have an economic stake in outcomes are the most active forces in crafting legislation, in uh participating in rulemaking proceedings. I mean, they're the ones who have the time and the money to be active participants. So what we really need is to make sure that the um, organizations and agencies that are responsible for representing consumers, that they also receive the resources they need. We need, you know, the ratepayer advocate office at the PUC and these other institutions to be well-resourced. They have to be in the game. They have to be representing the rest of us. We are talking about the legacy of Enron on California's energy supply. And Governor Davis, I know you have to go after this next break. I would welcome any final thoughts that you might want to share. I mean, our own, our current governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, is facing a recall as well. Any advice for him? Well, I, I want to make two comments. Uh, first of all, someone said they're not following the law. I don't know if you recall the first vote to pass the energy deregulation bill, which occurred two years before I became governor, but did not become, but, but, not, but did not become effective until I became governor. Uh, it was a unanimous vote. The bill was about this thick. I doubt if anyone read it. Mm. On the cleanup legislation, Tom Hayden was the only dissenting vote in both houses. So this is a very complicated area and very hard for people to get their hands around it. Well, it's been a privilege having you here to talk to us about it. Governor Gray Davis, thank you very much for joining us. We are talking about the California energy crisis 20 years later, and we want to hear from you. Give us a call or email us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. We're talking about the California energy crisis 20 years later. And Angela in San Francisco joins us on the line now. Welcome to you, Angela. Go ahead with your question. I'm sorry. It's actually Roger from Alameda. Go ahead. Uh, Yes. Um, My question is about motivation. Uh, It's very easy to see the, the money motivation behind Enron. So let's put that aside. They wanted to make money. Um, The other question is about political motivation. How much of this was about deregulation, which at its heart is a Republican idea for which private companies can make more money? And how much of this is about outright sabotage by the Republicans of a Democratic state and a Democratic politician, which it worked. It it got um, Governor Gray Davis uh, removed from office. So if someone in there could answer the question of the motivation of deregulation mo- versus the motivation of outright political sabotage against a democratic state and democratic politicians, I would appreciate it. Thank you. 
That sounds like a great question for Steve Weissman and Loretta Lynch. I'd love it if you could uh, jump in as well. Steve Weissman, a lecturer at uh, at Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, who was an investigator with the CPUC when all of this went down. Talk about that. How how did Enron insinuate itself into the rewriting of the law such that we ended up in this in this situation where deregulation was was suddenly the law of the land? Yeah, well, uh, Enron took uh I took on a, an unusual role at the time, which was uh, it obviously recognized it wanted to play a role in the California markets. And so it inserted itself in all of the proceedings before the commission where the rules were being established It inserted itself in what was referred to as the death march, march the negotiations among stakeholders uh, that crafted the legislation that was passed. And so they were, I think, largely successful in creating a set of rules that were designed to work to their advantage. To give you one example, um, the way the markets were restructured, um, the individual competitive generators weren't allowed to bid into markets on their own. They had to go through, in effect, a broker, which was referred to as a schedule coordinator. And, and uh, that's a and go what between. That meant was that, in effect, there had to there had to be an Enron type of organization involved in the markets, and so. So the, the, the big, big challenge, I think, was not necessarily a, a, an effort to sabotage a democratic state. I think it was a willingness on the part of the legislature and, frankly, the commission at the time to allow the people who were in the best position to benefit from the markets to correct, craft and negotiate the rules the market would, would operate under. Yeah, you talk a lot, Steve, about how you see the grid as one big machine and that you know, that the ideology that fueled the way the grid has always been run really had that in mind. It was one monopoly corporation running all of its components. And now suddenly there were five or six different entities involved, a bunch of middlemen in the middle there. Loretta, when you were watching the debate over deregulation play out, what was going through your mind? Well, I wasn't in government then, but I always think it's a really stupid idea to take 25% of the economy and completely turn it upside down without without least a pilot or a test. The problem is, corporate Democrats were happy to be pro market and take Ken Lay's money too, as did Bill Clinton. And his FERC chair, Jim Hecker, listened to Ken Lay much more than he ever listened to Governor Davis. I have to applaud Governor Davis. He stood up to the fraudsters and he stood up to Enron and they came and politically killed him for it. But the fact remains today, we still have a private corporation that answers to FERC in charge of our electricity markets and our grid. And today the sons of Enron in the form of Wall Street banks and offshore hedge funds are at it again. Our electricity markets were designed to serve the electricity traders, not the people. And that's still true today. And that's why we're seeing the problems today. As Rebecca Smith said, early on in the, in the new electricity markets 20 years ago, they were testing the system to see where they could defraud and how much money they could take out. They're doing it again. And I will bet you that this fall and next year, we are going to have the same kind of wholesale fraud that we experienced 20 years ago, unless the government acts now to protect California. We're going to go to Angela in San Francisco. Go ahead, Angela. You are on the line. Hi. Thank you so much. I just wanted to share a couple of anecdotes from my experience 20 years ago when I was a graduate student. And I was at UC Irvine, but I had flown up President's Week in 2001 to visit friends for up at Berkeley. And we were having dinner at North Beach. And halfway through our dinner, the power went out and it went out in the whole quadrant of the block that we were on and the restaurant basically had to shut down. We, I, mm. I, if I remember correctly, we didn't even get through our first course of dinner. And so this idea that it was only affecting consumers, I mean, it was, it was affecting small businesses as well. Um, and then my second anecdote was just then that following spring going to graduate, you know, being in classes and having to, use the computer lab and only being in in darkened rooms, right? The, we were going through brownouts pretty much the entire term where in order to use the energy for the computers, we had to have the lights on only at half capacity. And then for teaching as graduate students too, like 
at UC Irvine, the, the buildings are very modern architecture, and many of them don't have windows. So that, that also made teaching and learning very, very challenging then to, to be doing it in half light. Um, and it wasn't prolonged, but it was pretty. It was it was pretty profound at the time. And it's amazing how these terms become part of our lexicon so quickly. Brownouts, I remember that well from that time. And today we have uh, all kinds of different, <laughs> all kinds of different outages, whether it's rolling blackouts or PSPS, public safety power shutoffs. Um, it's it's really just become a, a reality of life in California. We're going to go to our next caller. Paul in San Francisco is on the line. Go ahead, Paul. Hi. Um, Senator Weiner has a bill before the legislature which would allow the building of uh, fourplex houses with 100 solar panels. It gets around the bad zoning law, and it decentralizes power energy production by putting uh, solar energy production into the hands of the working class so that when there is a power outage or any kind of problem, at least the homes have the power to charge their electric cars and to keep their houses functioning. And to me, uh, if I was governor, that would be my priority is that make it decentralized so that the homes, uh, we should solarize all the homes, give subsidies to people to uh, have solar. Uh, we're getting solar right now uh, from Tesla, and um, it's expensive, but it's worth it. And it's it's the number one priority for the environmental movement is to solarize all the homes everywhere in the United States and even worldwide. So uh, anybody that doesn't have at least own a solar-powered flashlight um, is not paying attention to the problem. And you can you can buy one solar panel from a company that will power your whole house because it, you get a battery with this solar panel and it will power either your lights or your computer or your refrigerator, but you can't do everything at once. So it's it, in, it costs $1,500 and you can get one panel, one battery, and that way at least you have a backup power system for uh, your lights or your refrigerator or your computer. Yeah. Um, so everybody can do something. Well, Paul, uh, it, it's an interesting point. And Paul is proposing, you know, essentially decentralizing the power grid. And I know from speaking with fire survivors in places like Paradise in Sonoma County, um, they want <laughs> nothing more than to not have to uh, to have PG&E provide their power. Uh, Steve, how how realistic is it, this idea of decentralizing or having people uh, kind of do their own thing, essentially? Well, the, I'm, I was really glad to hear the last two callers on, on this point. Uh, reflecting back to the, uh, to the caller who talked about her experience at UC Irvine. Well, as it happens, UC Irvine is now really on the cutting edge in terms of trying to develop its own internal reliability by creating what people refer to as a microgrid, which would uh, have a lot of the the, uh, the features that the last caller just described in terms of renewable energy sources and storage and the ability to relate to the bigger grid, but to isolate uh, when there's a problem on the bigger grid. And if you think back all the way to the first caller, talked about the need for for medical uh, 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 medical reliability for equipment, um, there's a difference in terms of what reliability means to different kinds of customers. And there is now fully the technical cap technological capability of having these microgrids, not only serving something as holistic as one university campus, but serving broader communities, uh, taking care of emergency services within a particular city, for instance. But we have a challenge in state law, which was designed to protect uh, the monopoly status of the, uh, of the traditional utilities and doesn't allow for this kind of what I'd call a community-based microgrid system to uh, be installed without uh, being encumbered with all the regulation uh, that traditional utilities would have. And efforts to, to, uh, to deal with this in the legislature have been quashed. I think there's a tremendous amount of concern, especially among uh, the uh, uh, utility workers uh, representatives uh, that this would somehow uh, lead to a loss of good union jobs, and uh, and I think that's not a necessary result. Uh, but in the meantime, the state is spending uh, through the Energy Commission millions of dollars to promote various kinds of pilot 
examples of, of these microgrids. And, uh, uh, and I think uh, there's, there's no doubt that you could not only improve local reliability by having that kind of structure, but you also could improve the reliability of the broader grid by having many, many decentralized energy sources to work with. May I make one point adding to what Steve just said, Lily? Of course. Uh, so I think there's something else that people need to be thinking about, which is cybersecurity. It's one thing to have uh, security in, in the sense that you can self-provide some of your own power. I think that's extremely important. People need also to be thinking about having independent power sources that are cyber secure. This is a whole separate area and I don't need to move us into some new terrain, but the states are not doing enough to see to the cybersecurity of the electricity grid. This is simply a fact. The federal government is not doing it. And to the extent that people try to provide some of their own resources, I think they will be better off in the long run, whether this is you know, distributed in the traditional sense or whether it's power being provided on location. All right. Thank you for that. We are talking about California's energy crisis 20 years later and its legacy today with Steve Weissman of the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, The Wall Street Journal's Rebecca Smith, and former CPUC President Loretta Lynch. You're listening to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali in Fermina Kim. We're going to go to our next caller now. Brandon in Foster City is on the line. Welcome to you. Hi, uh, thank you so much for taking my call. I just wanted to see if your panel is connecting the larger picture. My view is that this is we just we need to start having more conversations where we question the lifeblood of capitalism itself, which is the profit motive, where people just say I have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders, and that just gives a you know an, a, a carte blanche to pollute the herd's environment, hurt people who are less informed. Uh, take advantage of people. I don't think those are evil people that we're talking about. I think a clear parallel is in the healthcare industry where you have a whole industry of insurance just where the whole motive is to maximize premium collection and, and deny, deny delay till people die or give up. I feel like you know, they're not evil people either. It's just they're trying to – they have their public companies who are trying to make a, a profit and have a cute uh, quarterly report to fulfill. I feel like likewise uh, we just need to start having discussions also in these uh, insurance or the the, uh, the power companies, like it just amazes me how we have CEOs who have no clawback provisions to what they do. They they don't manage the the grid to maintain it. Yet their pay pays. If you look for it, there. If you look it up, it's uh, eight nine figures, crazy amount. Mm. And then this is just accepted. We need to start just speaking out, saying, uh, questioning the profit motive, and just calling out that these kind of pay comp compensation levels are outright not right. And finally, I'll close on just saying they then circle back and use those monies to use what I call bribery brokers. I don't call lobbyists lobbyists. I call them bribery brokers because they accept money from people who want to buy influence to our candidates and uh, and then and then do the influencing. What, but if they give the money directly, it's bribery. But if you give it to this middleman, then it's okay. I don't feel that's right. Mm. And finally, I just think we should have publicly funded campaigns that, that would just free candidates from having to go grovel to rich people for money because uh, that just sets up a quid pro quo. People who are with money are not paying $20,000 a plate to sit at these luncheons and so on but without thinking that they're getting some influence. Meanwhile, the bottom two-thirds of the population have absolutely no way to have their needs and, and, uh, and you know, desires you know, expressed in, cap in, in, in our House of Congress. Anyway, Brandon, Brandon in Foster City, thank you so very much for your call. And thank you to all of our listeners who are writing us about this topic. Kathleen writes, all utilities, water and electricity specifically, need to be publicly owned, not-for-profit and well-regulated. Walt writes, my strongest memory of the Enron period was when I opened my bill this month. I have chronic heart failure and no central gas heat in San Francisco. And to keep warm enough, my bill is more than I can pay, even with the lifeline allowance. 20 years later, we are still paying for the corruption by Enron and their buddies. Loretta Lynch, what do you think when you hear a comment like that? Brandon and Kathleen and all your other callers have it right. Other Western states and other local government-owned utilities within California are not blacking their customers out and are not charging these exorbitant prices. This isn't about climate change, the blackouts, because they all face droughts, wildfires, and too little water to run their hydro systems. The difference here is 
California turned its electricity system over to a private corporation that answers to the feds, and we created an electricity market that has become a casino for the electricity traders, and we all pay and pay and pay. We have to shut down that casino and protect our people and our businesses. Thank you very much for all the calls and comments. And we do have a lot more calls to get to and not a ton of time. So I'm just going to go next to Mike in San Francisco. Mike, if you could keep it short, I'd appreciate it because there's a bunch of people that want to weigh in here. (laughs) I'm an industry professional, so this is going to be really tough. Oh, no. (laughs) um, uh, Yeah. So quickly, um, you know, I wanted to, um, I guess, respond to a couple of the callers and, underscore uh, i think governor davis made a great point when he said when he talked about how complicated the system is and just to respond to capitalism being flawed or um uh, uh you know the fact that uh you know utilities uh, are you know exploiting um they they are but it is uh you know this is a product of a system that is was built up without a without an overarching plan and you have a lot of grids that are connected to each other, uh, governed on their own, um, and are attempting to integrate with each other, leaving loopholes for companies uh, like Enron to exploit. Um, and then you actually have, um, uh, you know, you actually have intrinsic flaws with regulatory finance. And I mm. won't get. I love the conversation <laughs> about about decentralization, but you know, there's intrinsic flaws you know, that PG&E, Southern California, Edison have in their model. So my quick question for the um, uh, panel was if there was any um, specific uh, 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 policy measure that they think could really move us in the right direction. Because, again, being a professional, I don't even know the answer to this one myself. (laughs) Loretta Lynch, can you answer that in 10 seconds or less? (laughs) Require the private power plants that we pay to be ready to run when needed and find them if they don't and require the ISO to fully give all Californians transparency into who's buying, who's selling, and at what price, and who's withholding. That would go a long way. All right. We've been talking about the California energy crisis 20 years later with Steve Weissman of the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, Wall Street Journal reporter Rebecca Smith, and Loretta Lynch. Thanks to Gray Davis. I'm Lily Jamali. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.